And we are going to start this morning with a little assignment for you. I'd like you to think of the two people most unlikely to convert to Christianity. But before you do that, I should explain what I mean by convert or a convert. First of all, let me tell you what I don't mean. I don't mean someone who decides to take on the trappings of a religion, whatever religion it is. So, for example, a cousin of mine converted to Judaism in his 20s. But it was not because he had any kind of spiritual experience. It wasn't because he was convinced or won over by the teaching of Judaism. It was because his girlfriend belonged to a Jewish family and he wanted to marry her. Now, that was not going to happen unless he jumped through a few hoops first. So he converted. He took on a few traditional practices. That's what some people mean when they talk about conversion. But it's not what the Bible means. As it's presented in the Bible, conversion involves being changed. It's about inner transformation. It's not just about outer conformity to some kind of religious practice. Someone has defined biblical conversion as a reorientation of the soul. The Bible describes it as receiving a new heart and a new spirit. The Bible says that God works in us and we become new creations. So it's, not, it's about what God does for us, not about what we do for God. So then, with that understanding of conversion, take a moment and picture the two people most unlikely, you think, to convert to Christianity. They can be people you know or people you've heard about, a relative maybe, a colleague or even a celebrity. Now set those folk in the back of your mind for a few minutes. We'll come back to them later. We're going to turn now to the book of Acts. And every week as we've been looking at Acts, the screen behind has been reminding us that this book shows us God at work. Last week, we saw God's untamable power. We saw that human persecution and other supernatural powers cannot limit God's power. Now this morning, we're going to see the reach of God's power. Turn with me to Acts chapter 8. We'll be picking up this morning at Acts chapter 8, verse 26. And if you're using one of the church Bibles, that's page 1101. We're going to see in this passage that no one is beyond God's reach. This passage contains two very unlikely converts. They're very different, but they're both unlikely converts. We're going to look at them one at a time. First, we meet a powerful outsider who wants to belong. But our passage opens by focusing in on a man called Philip. Philip is the man who's going to witness to this powerful outsider. And we met Philip last week. He's not a leader in the church. 
But he's a man who loves to tell others about Jesus. He takes the opportunities that come along to him. And he's open to opportunities that God points him to and directs him towards. Last week, Philip was in the northern part of Israel, Samaria. But now, if you look at chapter 8, verse 26, we're told, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This was a main road that went all the way down to Egypt and then further down to Africa. It's clear to Philip that this instruction is coming to him from God. So he goes, verse 27. So he started out and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. In just a few lines, we learn a lot about this man in the chariot. First of all, he's a long way from home. The region the Bible calls Ethiopia is today part of Sudan. And commentators tell us the journey from his home up to Jerusalem and then back home again would have been a round trip of around 10 months. That's a long time to be bumping along in the back of a chariot. We're also told that this man is powerful. He's the chancellor of the exchequer back in his homeland. And he's someone who's looking for God. The reason he made this trip was to worship in Jerusalem. But for all this man's importance and for all of his desire to know God, he has a significant problem. We're told in these verses that he's a eunuch. What that means is that he's been castrated and probably dismembered as well. In the ancient world, that was the standard practice for men who either took care of a king's harem or who worked closely with the queen. It just kept things safe and uncomplicated for the royal women. So this man is wounded. He's damaged. And in his own culture and work context, that wasn't a big problem. In fact, it allowed him to hold the high position that he did. But if his wound didn't hold him back career-wise, it was a major barrier to his relationship with Israel's God. This man would never be accepted as a convert to Judaism. And if we ask why, the answer is because the law said so. In Deuteronomy chapter 23, we read this. No one who has been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter the assembly of the Lord. That's the polite version. The English standard version is more literal on this. It says no one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ has been cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. But that is exactly what has happened to this Ethiopian man. 
And so, according to the law, there is no place for him among God's people. He's not considered to be whole. He's damaged. And so, when he went to Jerusalem to worship, he would have been restricted to the outer courts of the temple. His visit to Jerusalem would have made it crystal clear to him that he is an outsider. And he always will be. The wound that he carries around with him stops him getting close to God. Yes, he has a high position in society, but he can't get access to God. And yet, it's to this man, this religious outsider, that God is sending his messenger, Philip. God is seeking this man out. Look at verse 29. The Spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. The eunuch was reading this passage of scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. Everyone read out loud in the ancient world and chariots on long journeys don't move very fast. So Philip is able to figure out what it is that the eunuch's reading. And the man is only too happy to have someone explain it to him. The passage in Isaiah is about someone who's called the servant of the Lord. It describes that servant suffering unjustly and dying unjustly. In the NIV, verse 33 says, who can speak of his descendants? I think a better translation would be, who can speak of his generation? In other words, what kind of generation would do such an evil thing? Murdering an innocent man. Isaiah doesn't name this innocent, murdered servant of God. He was prophesying hundreds of years before this time. But Jesus had explained that Isaiah was talking about him. He was the lamb led to the slaughter. He submitted to an unjust death on a cross. And he did it as a substitutionary sacrifice for all those who did deserve death. And that includes all of us. And it includes this eunuch too. That's what Philip explains to him. And in verse 35, it's called good news. It's good news because it means Jesus has died the death that we all deserve. He died cut off from God so we could come near to God and be reconciled to God. 
Think about this from the eunuch's point of view. Here he is seeking God, yet carrying around this wound that separates him from God. But now he's hearing that Jesus was wounded so he could come near to God. Verse 36. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away. And the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about, preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. Verse 35 said that Philip's message about Jesus was good news. And to the eunuch, it's such good news that it almost seems too good to be true. Maybe that's what's behind his question in verse 36. They come to some water and he says, why shouldn't I be baptized? In other words, is there anything to prevent me? There always has been in the past. Is there anything that still prevents me? Is there anything that disqualifies me? Is this really good news for me? Has this Jesus really done what's necessary for me to be accepted and welcomed by God? And the life-changing answer is yes. This is for you. God's salvation is for the wounded and the outsider. It's for those who are not whole. You don't have the ability to climb up to God, but he has come down to you. And he has died to raise you up to himself. Whenever I asked you to think of unlikely converts, maybe you thought of yourself. I'm sure that we realize today physical disability doesn't hinder us from coming to God. But maybe you're carrying around another kind of wound. Maybe it's something that has happened to you in the past or something you've been involved in in the past. Maybe your life is outwardly successful like this eunuch. But inside you don't feel whole. And maybe you wonder if God accepts people like you. Wounded outsiders. Is there a place for you in his family? The answer is yes. God seeks out wounded people. Jesus himself said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And he went on to explain that he came for those who are spiritually sick and wounded. You're not beyond the reach of God's love. You're not beyond the reach of his saving power. Jesus was disfigured and rejected so you could be accepted. You can come to him this morning and you can leave this morning the way the eunuch did, 
Verse 39 says he went on his way rejoicing. One of our songs says, In Christ we have been accepted and brought near to God. That was the eunuch's experience and it can be your experience too. We're told that before Philip and the eunuch parted company, the man was baptized. Baptism is an outward symbol of what's already happened on the inside. When we put our faith in what Jesus has done, God washes us. Whatever our wounds might be, he makes us clean and whole. Being baptized is a way of glorifying God for accepting us and giving us new life. And maybe you've already come and you've received this new life that we're talking about. And so maybe the challenge for you this morning is to glorify God by going public about what he's done for you. Maybe it's time for you to be baptized and testify to others about the welcome God has given you. Well, after hearing about the eunuch, it's hard to imagine a more different kind of person than the man we meet next. His name is Saul. In fact, even the geography is opposite. The eunuch, we were told, was on the road south to Africa. We were about to meet Saul on the road north to Damascus. And that's only the beginning of the contrast between these two men. Because Saul has no feelings of inadequacy. He sees himself as the strong one. And he's on a campaign to sort everyone else out. Look at chapter 9, verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. I'm not sure who deserves the title today of number one enemy of Christianity. But in the early days of the church, Saul was it. Verse 1 says, he was still breathing out murderous threats. And that reminds us that we've heard about Saul before. The beginning of chapter 8 told us that when Stephen was executed by a mob, Saul was there, giving approval to Stephen's death. Then we were told Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Saul is serious about this. He's not just into threats and intimidation. He wants to stamp this thing out. He is an angry fanatic who wants to destroy. And he's not content to batter the church in Jerusalem. He's pursuing believers all the way to Damascus. That's 135 miles north of Jerusalem. As the church is expanding its mission, Saul is expanding his own mission against the church. The letters that he asks for are to give him the right of extradition. He wants to bring believers back to Jerusalem so they can have the same treatment as Stephen. 
Never mind that the Jews had no legal authority to do this. Saul doesn't care. And it's important to realize people don't tend to get this angry about something unless they're pretty convinced that they understand it. That's another difference between Saul and the eunuch. The eunuch wanted help to understand the Bible. Saul is sure that he understands it very well. And as far as he's concerned, this Jesus movement is not the culmination of the Old Testament. It's not the completion of all those promises and all that hope. No, it's a dangerous perversion. It's a threat to Saul's whole outlook and way of life. Saul is supremely self-confident. He's very wise in his own eyes. Verse 2 calls Christianity the way. Later on in Acts, we'll find out that's short for the way of God, meaning the way to get right with God. And that's the thing about Christianity that gets under Saul's skin. He's sure he doesn't need to get right with God. He didn't need someone to die for him. He's good enough by himself. From a human perspective, it's hard to imagine someone further away from faith in Jesus. But things from God's perspective are very different. God is seeking out this self-righteous, angry man, just as he sought out the wounded Ethiopian. And it turns out the moment Saul's opposition is at its height, that's God's chosen moment to step in and save him. Look at verse 3. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Verse 7 makes it clear that this didn't just happen inside Saul's head. This is a public thing. Now granted, the people with Saul didn't understand what was happening, but they knew something was happening. What was happening is that Jesus himself has intervened to turn Saul's life around. Saul was certainly not an interested seeker. He wasn't going to come that way. He wouldn't have shown up at a Christianity Explored course, except maybe to physically attack the people leading the course. Saul is a Jesus hater. But that is no barrier to an all-powerful God. For all of his anger, Saul is not outside of God's reach. At first, Saul doesn't know who's talking to him. 
when he says in verse 5, Who are you, Lord? That probably means a little bit more than just, Who are you, sir? It's pretty obvious the person talking to him is more than that. But Saul is not yet calling Jesus Lord. He doesn't know yet that this is Jesus. But then as he identifies himself, Jesus explains to Saul that to persecute Jesus' people is to persecute Jesus himself. This is a truth that hit home to Paul, to Saul, who will later become Paul. And he never ever forgot it. Later he would write that the church is Christ's body. And that Christ himself is the head of that body. When someone touches the church, they're touching Jesus himself. That's what Saul has been doing. But amazingly, Jesus doesn't wipe Saul out as he's lying there in the road. In his mercy, Jesus says, I have plans for you, Saul. My power is great enough not only to stop you in your tracks, but also to turn you from my greatest enemy into my greatest instrument. So in verse 6, Jesus says, Get up and go into the city. You will be told what you must do. And when you and I see and hear God's enemies, we mustn't assume The only thing God can do with people like that is to destroy them in judgment. Many of them will receive his judgment. But his power is not limited to stopping his enemies. Our God can also save and transform his enemies. Even the angriest of them. Saul was on a mission. But Jesus has a greater mission for him. When you thought of your unlikely converts, I would guess that none of them were more unlikely than Saul. Maybe you thought of someone who seems so hardened and so opposed that they're beyond reach. But Saul is here to show that no one is beyond God's reach. Whoever it was that we thought of, we have no reason to assume God would never take hold of her or him. But this passage is not just here to encourage us. It may be here to give us a shove as well. Look what happens next in verse 10. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias? Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. Straight Street is still one of the main roads in Damascus today. That's where Saul ends up lodging. 
But think for a moment what it means for Ananias to go and visit Saul there. Ananias knows all about this man. Walking into his lodging house amounts to giving himself up to the police. This could be a suicidal thing to do. It's one thing to sit and talk about God's power to save. It's another thing to go and reach out to God's enemies. We find that just as intimidating as Ananias did. But God reassures him. Verse 15. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. We've seen that God is at work, directing all of these events, both with the eunuch and with Saul. But notice, too, what a vital part God's servants play in all of this. It was through Philip's obedience that the eunuch came to understand God's word. And here, through the obedience of Ananias, Saul finds a human welcome into the family of God. In verse 17, Ananias lays his hands on this blinded, humbled enemy of the church, and he calls him brother. It's hard to imagine what it must have taken for Ananias to say that. But that acceptance must have been overwhelming to Saul. That God would pour out this grace on him. And that God would do it through one of the men Saul was trying to destroy. This is the reach of God's power. Not only can he turn the hearts of his enemies, he can incorporate those enemies into his church. He can give a man like Ananias the grace to reach out to his persecutor and say, brother. There's a book, it's an old book, called Your God is Too Small. And maybe you and I are being challenged this morning about our view of God. Maybe we have too limited a view of God's power. In recent weeks, we've been talking together about persecution and the fact that we need to be prepared for a taste of persecution. But we mustn't look at our society and assume that it's beyond God's reach. There are no limits to the reach of his power. Our calling is to trust him and listen to him and make ourselves available as his instruments. It's not our place 
to start deciding who God can and can't reach. When God puts us in the path of the wounded, we must be ready to say, I have good news for you. And when he brings the angry and the haters to faith in Jesus, we must be ready to hold out our hands and say, brother, sister. We live in a time when the church is on the margins. But it may yet prove to be a time of great opportunity for the church. We have what people need. And even our society is not beyond God's reach. We've been talking about good news. And we're going to close with an opportunity to respond to the good news we've been talking about. We're going to sing above the voices of the world around me. And maybe you can sing this as a prayer of trust in Jesus. And then we'll close by praising him as we sing, Behold Our God. So stand with me, please.